your word would not uh, simply come into our ears and, and stop there, but that it would go to our hearts, Lord, and that um, we would see transformation and that we would see change in our lives. We, we want to come to your word and be altered by it this morning, Lord. But I pray it would not stop there. I pray that as we go in just a bit, that the word that has changed our hearts would pass to our lips and that it would fill our conversations and that we could be messengers of the good news this week because of the way that we have learned uh, during this time with your word open. So we submit ourselves, Father, to the authority of your word. We will not stand over it and, uh, and say what it will mean for our lives. We submit ourselves to its authority. We sit under it and what you say goes. So uh, you are Lord and uh, we want to listen with that in mind, so I pray that we will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Been a little bit since we were in Luke, a couple of weeks, and so uh, just a reminder, we're in the upper room, the disciples are there with Jesus, Peter and John prepared the Passover meal there, just like Jesus told them to, and then Jesus ate the Passover meal with his uh, disciples, and in that meal he transforms the memorial uh, regarding the Passover into this new memorial meal where uh, we as the church will remember his death and we will remember his blood being poured out and uh, we will remember that it's through the cross that we receive all of these new covenant promises that God has made to us and so we come to the table and we remember and we commune with God and we anticipate that he will return. At some point as he is instituting the Lord's Supper, Judas gets up and he leaves. And then after supper, the disciples have this argument about who is the greatest among them, which seems totally inappropriate considering the Lord's Supper was just instituted and that Jesus has just looked at them and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Seems like a really inappropriate time to have, uh, to, to have a dispute about which one of them is the greatest, but they do, and that is likely spillover from the discussion that happened earlier on before Judas left the dinner when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all going, well, who's it going to be? It's not going to be me. Is it going to be you, right? And so that spilled over into after supper, and they're now arguing about who the greatest is going to be. Uh, and then we saw Jesus surprisingly in the midst of teaching them, hey, this isn't the way you're going to act. This is the way the Gentile uh, kings and rulers act. It's not, not the way that you're going to act. Um, the, the greatest among you is going to be the servant, right? The greatest among you is going to put themselves last. Uh, and then he surprisingly says, but you've all been loyal to me and here are the rewards that I have in store for you. And so that's where we're picking it up this morning. The narrative continues with a warning from Jesus about a future denial from the Apostle Peter and then instructions for the disciples on how they should live now that the hour of danger has arrived. And we will glean some things from this this morning for our own spiritual lives uh, about how we, when the hour of darkness and when the hour of danger and the hour of temptation comes, cannot rely on our own flesh and our own wisdom. But instead, we get a rock-solid source of reliability this morning. So Luke 22, I'll start reading for us in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And so on the heels of Jesus's promise about how there's going to be reward for the loyalty of the disciples, which was an unexpected turn, right? He's saying, hey, you are arguing the way the Gentiles argue. That is not the way that it's going to be in my kingdom. It's not, not how you're going to act. You, know? you, you need to be last, right? You need to make yourself a servant. That's, that's what greatness is. And, and, and then he says, but you're loyal to me. Here are the rewards that I have in store for you. It's another turn in the story when suddenly he's saying, right after I've got these rewards for you, hey, Peter. Satan has come for you. He has demanded to sift you like wheat. That's really not what you would expect on the heels of him promising reward for loyalty, that one of his inner circle is going to deny him three times on that very night. But that's what's happening in verses 31 through 34. Jesus says Peter's name twice in verse 31, Simon, Simon. Simon is Peter's real name. Peter is actually more of a nickname given to him by Jesus, which I love that. Um, Luke 6, 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, right? So Peter was the name Jesus gave to him, but Simon was his uh, name given to him by his parents. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon here, says it twice. It's a gentle rebuke. If you are a parent, you have given this rebuke in your life. You know what I mean? It, like your child is wrong, but your child is also a bit emotionally erratic, and so, you know, for me, that's my middle child. And so I would get down on my knee. I might look at him and say, I'm going to get down on my knee. I don't do that. I might just stand there and look at him in the eye and say, Everett, Everett, right? That, as a parent, you know that tone. You, you've taken that tone before. Maybe even an aunt, uncle, grandparent, uh, you've taken that tone. That's the tone here. It's affectionate, but it's also serious. It's very similar to how he answers Martha's complaints about her sister in Luke 10. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. There's a reproof there, but the reproof is just soaked in love. Now that being said, I don't think that verse 31 is about Peter alone. And that's because of what we see in the Greek. The English translation leaves us missing a little bit of info here. In verse 31, when Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you, the you is plural. And when he says you again in verse 31, that he might sift you like wheat, again, the you is plural. So uh, two uses of the plural. Now when you get to verse 32, all four uses of the word you are singular. So what this tells us is that while in verse 32 Jesus is going to focus in and speak just to Peter, in verse 31 he's actually speaking to all the disciples, meaning Satan is not just asked to sift Peter like wheat. Satan has, after, has asked to sift all of the disciples like wheat. He wants all of them. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be sifted like wheat? 
I don't know about you, but wheat sifting is not a part of my usual work week. You know what I mean? So we need a little explanation here. We don't live in the, um, the agricultural society that uh, Jesus did. Sifting was a two-step process in the first century before all the conveniences of modern ingenuity and machinery. The first step was what they called the threshing, and that's where you would loosen the chaff, which was useless, from the edible grain. And the old-fashioned way to do this was to spread it out on a, uh, the wheat onto a floor that was stone or concrete or really packed down earth, and then they would beat it with a flail. All right, so it, it is not very pretty, and it's not super scientific, right? It's pretty straightforward. Spread it all out and beat on it. The second step was called winnowing, and the old-fashioned way of doing this was to take the winnowing fork and to scoop the grain, and they would throw it in the air, and the lighter chaff would blow away uh, with the wind. Even a decent breeze uh, could take it away, and the heavier grains would fall back down to the ground where they were thrown, and those are the grains that would be used. And so in the sifting, the hard outer shell is broken through, so nothing remains but the actual wheat. That's a picture of what Satan wants to do to the disciples. He wants to crack open their shell. He wants to use temptation, and he wants to use trials to show them that their faith is weak, maybe even non-existent. He wants to expose them as fraudulent chaff and harm the name of Christ in the process because he believes, man, if I can get this Peter guy to fall, then maybe he'll curse God's son to his face. This is exactly what he wanted to do with Job in Job 1. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And make no mistake, the sifting that is being spoken of here is the sifting that will take place as their Lord is arrested, and he is put on trial unfairly, and he is crucified. Jesus is about to go through an unthinkable sequence of events in order to save your soul and to save my soul but it is very much a spiritual crucible for the men that are around him as well they love him and this will be pain and sorrow and fear unlike anything that most of us will even experience in life they are at the epicenter of a cosmic war for the souls of man and the glory of god and they've got all these hopes and excitements and dreams wrapped up in this rabbi. Not in him saving the souls of people. They're not even thinking on that level at this point. They're thinking about him overthrowing Rome. They're thinking about him taking David's throne. They're thinking about him restoring Israel. That's what they're thinking about. But as they watch him get arrested and put on trial and be crucified, all those hopes and dreams are going out the window. And you wonder, how can they even stand up under the weight of what they're about to go through? Because I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I could stand up under it. Watching Jesus be arrested, watching Jesus be spit on, watching Jesus be beaten, watching Jesus be crucified, to see that with your own eyes. After walking with him every day, spending every waking moment with him for three years, the most amazing man to ever walk the earth, the most amazing friend that anybody could ever have, and to watch him be crucified. How can you take it? How can their faith survive these next few days? 
You think there's no way until you read that Jesus has prayed. In verse 32, in particular, he's prayed for Peter. So if we wanted to kind of include what we know in the Greek, that the yous are plural, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded all of you that he might sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why would he pray for all the, the or uh, only pray for Peter and not pray for all the disciples? He, he looks at all of them. Satan wants to sift all of you like wheat, but I'm only praying for you, Peter, right? <laughs> if, if you're Bartholomew, you're sitting there going, what's the deal? You know, um, can I get some prayers? But we know, we know from John 17 that Jesus prays for all of the disciples. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. John 17, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he has prayed for them. He has prayed for their strength as Satan comes for them. But in verse 32, he's probably just speaking to Peter because Peter is the lead among equals. Peter is the lead shepherd of this little new covenant tribe once Jesus resurrects and he ascends into heaven. Peter is the first one to take up the mantle after the Spirit falls on the church and their witness is empowered by the Spirit. He's the first one to take up the mantle and to stand up and to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2. And the prayer that Jesus has offered up on Peter's behalf is that his faith would not fail and that once he repents, he would strengthen the other disciples. And Peter responds in very Peter-like fashion. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'll go to jail for you. I'll go to jail with you. I'll die for you. I'm ready, Lord. Peter cannot fathom that the sifting that Satan has demanded would result in any sort of situation where he needs to repent, where his loyalty would fail. He cannot imagine a situation where he would defect from Jesus like that scoundrel Judas. But we know that he will. In just a few weeks, I'll preach this text. Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We'll talk more about that passage next month, but clearly Peter is wrong in his overestimation of his own strength. He's wrong in his underestimation of how hard things are really going to be in the next few hours. 
And ultimately, he just doesn't realize how easy it is to do the easy thing when the hard thing might cost you something, even your life. And that's something for all of us to remember. It's one thing to stand there and say you'll do the hard thing. But it's another thing to do the hard thing when it will cost you something. It's so easy to opt for the easy option, isn't it? When you know the hard thing is going to require sacrifice. And so Jesus responds with this harsh dose of reality that before the rooster crows, meaning before it is even morning, that Peter will deny Christ three times. He will deny him completely. The man who says, I will go to prison with you, I will die for you, will turn and he will run after being questioned by a powerless servant girl. This had to be so hard for Peter to hear. Everything this man had ever said to him has come true. There was no reason for Peter to doubt that this also would come true. But I love that Christ says in verse 32, and when you have turned again, because Christ anticipates Peter's repentance. Christ knows Peter is the Lord's. Satan thinks, I'm going to get him. I'll crack his heart outer shell. I'll expose his faith. By the time I'm done with him, he'll, he'll just be back out on that fishing boat. He won't think another day about Jesus. He won't think another day about the kingdom, about this ministry business. He'll just get back to catching the fish. But Jesus knows Satan will sift you like wheat, but you belong to me. Jesus knows there's real faith in Peter's heart because Jesus is the one that put it there. He knows that Peter is his. And Peter will come home because the real sheep of the Lord's fold do not wander in the wilderness forever. They know his voice and they come home. Now as we look at verses 35 through 38, here's what's clear in the prediction that Jesus has given us about Peter's denial, it's that things are about to get dangerous. Things are about to get dangerous, right? The hour of darkness in which the God uh, of the universe in the flesh is crucified by sinful men for sinful men is near. It's the event that will split history right down the middle. It is the event that's going to change everything, and it's going to change everything spiritually, Right, But it's also going to change everything circumstantially for these disciples. Because their association with Jesus just became much more dangerous. And he speaks to them with that in mind in verses 35-38. through 38. In verse 35, he reminds them of previous missions he sent them on where they carried no money bag, they carried no knapsack, they carried no sandals. Luke 9, verse 1, And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. There's another instance in Luke 10. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. What they were supposed to do instead of relying on those practical needs is to find a man of peace. They would find uh, a person that was receptive to the gospel message and then they would go into that person's home and that person would provide needs for them. Many of our International Mission Board missionaries still use this strategy today. They pray for the man of peace. They pray for someone in their ministry context that they could uh, establish a relationship with who would be receptive to the gospel and then to start entering that person's home, sharing the gospel, eating with them, meeting with them, um, and then hopefully um, that person will become a believer. But what we're finding out here is that 
though their needs were provided for, right? He asked if they lacked anything. They said no, that things are now changing. The man of peace is going to be more difficult to find. There's going to be adversaries all over the place. The enemies of Christ are going to be numerous. And any enemy of Christ is going to be an enemy to the disciples. And so Jesus changes his instructions in light of the danger that is present now. He says, you better take your money bag because you're going to need it. And you better take your knapsack because you're going to need it. And then he says this thing that we got to spend a little bit of time on where he's like, you should sell your cloak and buy a sword. So is he saying, go get your money, go get your clothes and strap up because we're about to take the kingdom by blood. Is that what he's saying? Well, I don't think he means to be that literal as he talks about the swords. And I know it might excite some of you, the idea of the 12 apostles being commissioned by Jesus to strap on a concealed carry, right? But that doesn't uh, actually make a lot of sense considering what's going to happen just a couple of hours from here when Jesus is arrested. Luke 22, verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So if Jesus' response, and we know from the other gospel writers that it's Peter who, who uh, struck the, uh, the servant of the high priest, and the servant of the high priest's name was Malchus. Maybe a, little, maybe a little hint to us that Malchus became a believer because they knew him by name, but maybe not. We don't know. Um, by the way, Peter was not swinging for his ear, all right? <laughs> he was trying to cut him uh, right down the middle. He was trying to split his melon wide open. He was trying to kill him is what he was trying to do. If Jesus' response to that is a sharp rebuke, why would we think he really wants his disciples running around like Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles with swords, Okay. I think if the command was literal, we'd probably see a lot more sword-wielding violence in the book of Acts, but we really don't see that, do we? We see peaceful resistance when they are persecuted. And so in light of these things, I think it makes more sense that Jesus is speaking figuratively about this sword, and that the sword represents spiritual readiness. You're going to need your money and you're going to need your knapsack because you're not going to be able to find people to take care of your needs and it's going to be dangerous and it's the sort of mission work that would require a sword if indeed the kingdom was one with swords. If that's how we were winning the kingdom, if we weren't winning it with the proclamation of the gospel and we were winning it with blades, well then you better have a blade because this work's going to be dangerous. But we don't win the kingdom with swords, right? The kingdom is won by the power of the gospel. The kingdom is won through the cross of Christ. And so the sword is figurative. It's him saying, you better be prepared for the practical needs that you're going to have, and you better be prepared for spiritual battle. It's coming. But the disciples are so lost in what Jesus is saying, they take it totally literally, and they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he responds by saying, it is enough. Which is probably him saying, that's enough of talking about this. The disciples are so off base and pointing at the literal swords in the room, Jesus basically says, just, just stop. Marvin Pate puts it this way. He says, so complete was the disciples' misunderstanding of his saying about the need to buy a sword that he refused to explain it anymore. We might colloquially render Jesus' words thus. 
I give up. Now, with all this going on, we might be tempted to think things are spinning out of control. I mean, one of Jesus' friends has just betrayed him. Another one of his closest friends, we find out, is going to deny him. He's warned the disciples of this threatening time that is ahead. Is Satan getting the high ground here? Has Satan gained an advantage in the war for souls? Well, lest we or the disciples uh, stray off into that sort of thinking where we think that God's plan is going off the rails, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53 in verse 37. It's Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Key words in this quotation come in the back half of Isaiah 53, 12, numbered with the transgressors. And those are the words that Jesus highlights in verse 37. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus will die with sinners, and Jesus will be counted as a sinner by those who crucify him. And yet, the words that follow tell us there was more going on than those who crucified him would be aware of. If you keep reading on Isaiah 53, verse 12, we find out that the one who is numbered with the transgressors bears the sins of many. So he's numbered with the transgressors, but in reality, he's not a transgressor. He's bearing the sins of the transgressors. He is dying for the law-breaking of all of God's children. He makes intercession for the transgressors, and his death is the basis for that intercession. His atoning blood makes a way to God for people. The intervention of his pierced hands and feet make it possible for people like me and you to truly know God and love God and worship God and have a relationship with God. So no, God's plan, it's not off the rails. All of this is happening just as he has ordained it to happen. Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. Satan is not gaining the high ground. He never will. Satan is a created being. The length of his leash is as much under God's control as the rising and the setting of the sun. In fact, with each step that Jesus takes toward the cross, Satan's thinking, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, but his fate is just being sealed all the more to the eternal lake of fire. And this quotation that Jesus gives in verse 37 is this bright star against a dark backdrop. It's a tough passage. Satan wants to sift all the disciples. Peter's going to deny Christ. Their mission's about to get much harder and much more dangerous. But this little quote from Isaiah 53 is a pulsating star in the night sky. It is a reminder from the mouth of Christ that God is in control, that the plan of God is being fulfilled in His Son. Is it going to be dangerous? Yes. Will there be moments of weakness for His followers? Yes. But is the Lord Jesus carrying out the Father's plan and accomplishing salvation for transgressors like me and you? Yes. The Lamb is on His way to the altar. And because we love Jesus, there's this part of us as we read it going, no, I don't want Him to die. But there's that other part of us that knows, if I'm going to know the Lord, he has to. I don't think we can leave this passage without stopping and thinking about Jesus' office as our great high priest. The scriptures give us a lot of words to describe Jesus' work and his role in our salvation, but you could really boil them down to three words. 
that in our salvation, Jesus is our prophet, and Jesus is our priest, and Jesus is our king. Jesus is the prophet who brings the Father's word to the world. He is the one who tells the truth. He predicts the future with precision. He has revealed the Father to us by the words of his mouth. He is the king from David's line who calls a people out of the world as a nation for himself. He is the king who gives commands for us to live by. The king who commissions us to go and fulfill the great commission. The majestic ruler of our lives who demands full allegiance. And so he is our prophet and he is our king, but he is our priest. And when we say that Jesus is our priest, we're saying that he provides for us two things. He provides atonement, and he provides intercession. That's what the priests did in their God-appointed roles in the Old Covenant. They made atonement for the people, and they interceded for the people, meaning they represented the people to God, and they represented God to the people. We've already seen Jesus' atoning work in this passage in verse 37, when he quotes from Isaiah 53, 12. He's reminding the disciples of the mission he's about to complete, that he will atone for his people as our great high priest, that he will satisfy the justice of the Father, and that he will bear the wrath that you and I deserve for all of our sinning. And he stands above the Old Testament priest, like Aaron, And like his son Eleazar, because their intercession was done in mortality, right? They were going to die one day. They had sin of their own. But Jesus is better than them because he had no sin of his own to atone for. He bore the sins of the people himself. He didn't go and, and find a spotless lamb on a farm somewhere outside of Jerusalem. He himself was the sacrifice. And so he has atoned for our sin, but that's only one half of what he does as the priest over our salvation. He doesn't only pour out his soul unto death, he also makes intercession for us. And we get a little preview of this intercession in verse 32. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. That's intercession. I prayed that when you turned again, you would strengthen your brothers. That's intercession. This is Jesus making an intercessory prayer for Peter. To intercede is to stand between two parties. Jesus is praying to Peter, or praying for Peter to the Father. And even before Jesus' atoning death, we see him doing this, compassionately taking Peter and lifting him up to the throne of the Father in his prayers. Satan has asked for Peter. Satan has asked for the disciples. Just like he asked for Job. He wants to sift them. He wants to test their shell. Peter is about to find himself on the threshing floor when he is confronted about being one of Jesus' friends. The disciples are going to find themselves on the threshing floor when they watch their Savior arrested and when they watch Him unfairly tried and they watch Him crucified. But they're not alone. They're not alone on the threshing floor. Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you. We know Peter's faith is going to falter, right? He is going to deny Christ. And Jesus tells him this is the way it's going to be. But his faith will not fail. By the strength of the prayer of God in the flesh, Peter's faith is not going to fail. We saw Jesus pray for the disciples in John 17. They're going to be hated for the sake of Christ's name. 
and yet they're going to be covered in the strength, uh, the strength of Christ's prayer. This is the merciful heart of the great intercessor on display. But then he dies. We know that's where the story is going. He will be numbered with the transgressors. And then he resurrects on Easter Sunday, right? We know that's where the story is going. And on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, here's my question this morning. What's he doing there now? Is he just sitting there, twiddling his divine thumbs, waiting for the moment when the Father says, now you can go. And then Jesus goes, all right, I'm returning. Didn't do anything for the last couple thousand years. Just sat here and waited. And now I'm returning. No, of course not. He is at the right hand of the Father still doing what we see him doing for Peter in verse 32. He is interceding for us. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father as an intercessor for his children. So let me read this to you from the scriptures. Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is alive and he is resurrected. Therefore, unlike the mortal priests, whose priesthood always ended at some point, right? They were going to die. And whether they wanted to retire or not, upon death, they would have to retire from the priesthood. Many retired before then, but upon death, they had to retire from the priesthood. But Jesus isn't this way. Death will never take away his role because he is the victor over death. He will be priest over us forever. He will be our high priest forever. And he is our high priest this morning, and he is interceding always lives to make intercession for them. He continues to stand in the gap for us this morning, continues to offer prayers for us this morning from at the right hand of the Father, just as we see him doing for Peter in the upper room. Some deny this reality. Some argue that the intercessory ministry of Christ in heaven is just to be present at the right hand of the Father. That's all it is. That the intercessory work of Christ in heaven is to sit at the right hand of the Father and that he is a visible reminder that our sins have been paid for and that we are redeemed. But I don't think that fits with the language we see in Hebrews 7. The Greek word for intercession in Hebrews 7 verse 25 is entunkano. Entunkano means to meet a person or it can mean to light something up, to illuminate it, or it can mean to pray. So let's just see which definition fits the context of Hebrews 7.25. Does it make sense to say since he always lives to meet a person for them? I guess you could argue he eternally meets the Father on our behalf, but that's not a very natural reading and kind of a weird way to talk. Could you argue that it, it means to say since he always lives to light something up or illuminate something for them? I guess you could argue that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding by always shedding light on his atoning work, but again, I don't think it's a very natural reading. It makes a whole lot more sense to read Hebrews 7.25 and say, since he always lives to make prayers for them. It makes sense. It's not natural, or it's not unnatural, it's not clunky, it's straightforward. 
If Christ represented us in prayer to the Father when he was on earth, why wouldn't he do it in heaven? You could say the same for Romans 8.34, which says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Greek verb, same one from Hebrews 7.25, in Tuncano. Once again, the idea of Christ not just being present for us, but praying for us makes the most sense. What would Jesus pray for us about at the right hand of the Father? Same business he was praying for Peter about when he was on earth. When you're in temptation, Christ prays for you. When you need forgiveness, he prays for your forgiveness on the basis of his own blood and his own death. When you are suffering and you're in trials, he prays for you. When Satan comes and he wants to reach out his slimy, demonic, miserable hand and he wants to touch us and test our shell and sift us like wheat, when he wants to toss us in the wind, Christ prays for you. The intercessory prayer of Christ in heaven is the work he uses to channel the mercy of his resurrected heart into our lives on a daily basis. He represents our needs and our aches and our tears to the Father. And he also represents the great compassion and mercy and comfort of the Father to us. This is what our priest, who not only atoned for us, but intercedes for us, does on our behalf. It reminds me of the words of the old Irish hymn from 1863 that we sing here pretty often. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. You know, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How can you stand up under the weight of that? How can you, you, Because I I don't know how your day went yesterday or how it went the day before, but I bet we don't have to rewind too long to find a day where you go, I blew it on that day. Or a day where it wasn't a sinful day for you, it was just a day of suffering for you where you really, you didn't stand up under it, you're like, man, I just wilted. I just curled up in a ball and and laid in my bed and collapsed in on myself like a dying star because that's about all I could do on that day. So when you read that the, the enemy, that the devil prowling around like a roaring lion he wants to put you in his jaws and chew you up how can you you who have these these bad days where sin or suffering gets the better of us how can we withstand the jaws of hell's lion how can our marriages and our children and our families and our church withstand the jaws of hell's lion if the answer is found in lord there's two swords in the room or your own strength or your own wisdom, or your own flesh, if you think the answer is found in you white-knuckling your way to victory over the devil in your flesh, it's not going to happen. Your strength is found in the great merciful high priest who compassionately pleads your case before the Father. And because our sin has been paid for, it is the Father's joy to hear the bishop of souls pray for our strength. Robert Murray Machine said it this way. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. 
yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and as they do, I want to ask you a few questions. If you could hear him praying for you in the bedroom, would you fear anything that's going on in the living room? If you could hear him praying for you in the break room, would you fear anything that's going on in your office? If you could hear him praying for you in the waiting room, would you fear anything that that doctor who's standing there with that chart is going to say to you? Well, take heart. Because our resurrected Lord might physically be in heaven this morning, but his prayers are just as loud in the ears of our Father. And he is with you in your heart as well, and he is strengthening you from within. The intercession of Christ is a reminder to us all that we are well and truly cared for. Satan may come, the hour of darkness may arrive, you might even falter like Peter does. But if you are his, your faith will not fail. Not because of your own flesh, not because of your own wisdom, not because of your own strength, not because of the swords in the room. Your faith will not fail because his priestly ministry is seeing to it every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Let's pray. Jesus, what a great joy it is to know that you are praying for us. I don't think we think about that a lot, Lord. Lord, you know the journey I went on this week. I had to rewrite the back half of the sermon because I made it about us praying to you. And then I realized it's wrong. This is a passage about you praying for us. And Father, I pray that our hearts are encouraged. There's a lot bearing down on us, some more than others. Everybody's got their, their cross this morning. Everybody has their, their own amount of weight that they've been called to carry by the Lord. And for some folks, it is a lot of weight. It's been heavy this week. How much of a comfort is it to know that we have not been down here scurrying along on our own? That even when we are forgetful about it, Jesus, you're sitting at the right hand of the glorious Father and you plead our case. We thank you for your prayers. And we thank you that because of your strength, our faith does not fail, even when it falters. We thank you that we don't have to fear the sifting of Satan. We don't seek it out, but we don't have to fear it because, because we have you. And we're not going to look around at the swords in the room and point to them and find our strength in them. We're going to look at the Savior in the room and find our strength in him, knowing that he always lives to make intercession for us. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.